You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. James Bullard is the president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. With the Delta variant and inflation on the rise, the economic recovery has hit a bumpy patch as concerns about masks and vaccines return to the forefront. In this episode, Bullard sits down with Washington Post Live to discuss the Fed's economic solutions and efforts to ease Americans' concerns. Let's listen. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Heather Long, an economics correspondent here at The Post. And today we're talking about the U.S. economy. It's in a little bit of a confusing place. We've seen a big rebound from the crisis and where we were a year ago, but there's still a lot of problems. There's nearly 10 million people who are unemployed. There's a lot of concern about inflation and labor shortages and supply chain disruptions and housing bubbles. So to try to make sense of this all for us, where we are and where we might be headed, I'm delighted to be joined today by James Bullard, the president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. Welcome, Jim. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's start with a topic on a lot of people's minds, this Delta variant. It's obviously surging in many parts of the country again. How could this impact the economy? How are you thinking about the impacts here? Yeah, uh, we certainly track the uh, pandemic daily, uh, not just in the U.S., but globally. Um, I think, you know, it has been disconcerting to everybody uh, that we're seeing more uh, cases, confirmed cases, and the potential for higher uh, hospitalizations and higher uh, deaths. So uh, we're concerned. I would say, however, that uh, the last uh, time we had a major run-up in the pandemic, the most intense period of the pandemic, it didn't affect the economy as much as uh, was predicted at that time. So uh, just to put this in context, the, you know, when the pandemic hit in March, April of 2020, then uh, obviously cases went way up and, and the economy went way down. So uh, there, there was a perfect negative correlation, but, but the most intense period of the pandemic was actually December and January of 2020, 2021. And there, uh, people were predicting a negative fourth quarter GDP growth in the U.S. That didn't happen. We got 4% plus in the fourth quarter of 2020. And then uh, uh, they're predicting negative uh, GDP growth again in the first quarter of 2021. That didn't happen. We got plus 6% uh, growth. So I think what has happened is that, um, yes, the pandemic's still with us. But uh, U.S. firms and U.S. consumers have found ways to work, consume, produce uh, while the pandemic's going on. And so much so that now national income is actually higher than it was before the pandemic, uh, uh, despite the pandemic not really uh, being totally over here and despite the arrival of vaccines. So my assessment is that um, as in any crisis, you have to watch uh, the Delta variant uh, very closely and any other future uh, uh, developments, but uh, there's been a lot of adaptation so far and it's led to uh, uh, pretty good uh, macroeconomic outcomes despite the pandemic. 
Yeah, I hear what you're saying about the resiliency, and that's been a, a good sign. But can I push you a little bit? Are you anticipating maybe any effects on the labor market? Obviously, some people have been hesitant or say they've been hesitant to return to work because of health concerns. And we also often hear from, I know you do too, from parents who are trying to juggle these daycares closing or, or these confusing school situations. Do you think there could be any labor market impacts? Yeah, I, I think we're hearing all the same things you are that uh, there is for people in high physical contact uh, types of jobs. There's still some hesitancy about going back to work because of the pandemic itself. Uh, so Delta variants affecting that. Um, absolutely, schools are an issue. Um, <clears throat> my sense is that most schools were really hoping, really, really hoping that they could uh, open normally this fall, so this is, uh, you know, uh, the variant has put a little bit of a question mark around that. And um, so uh, that will affect uh, people's, uh, uh, you know, willingness to take jobs in this environment. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to transition to inflation. I know you've spoken a lot about this recently, and it's certainly on many people's minds wherever I go. Uh, you made a, a comment on Friday that some of this is transitory, but not all of it. Can you walk us through what you think is is, is not going to be short-lived? What could stick around? What are your worries there? Yeah, I, I think, you know, we've had a major uh, inflationary shock here. and I think that we're not really used to thinking about inflation in the U.S. because it's really been below our 2% target ever since we named a target in 2012 and even some of the time before that. So uh, we really haven't had uh, inflation. Now you've got core PC inflation around three and a half percent measured from a year ago. That's as high as it, that number has ever been for 30 years. So this is a very different environment. And, and uh, I think we're all kind of trying to get our heads around um, uh, you know, the, where the risks are now, um, we do think it's uh, temporary and that the inflation shock will go away uh, as the economy continues to reopen. But I think it's going to be more persistent uh, than what most people expect. So just to put numbers on it, you know, if we get uh, three and a half uh, on core PCE, you're already throwing out food and energy here. Uh, you get that kind of inflation number for all of 2021 then I'd expect something between two and a half and 3% in 2022. And then you would gradually come down to the 2% uh, inflation target from there uh, in the subsequent years. So that would be the kind of normal way that this would uh, dissipate. I think people have uh, the idea that this is gonna be a very sharp uh, 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 slowdown in the inflation rate uh, in 2022. I, I'm, I think it's going to be more persistent. It is going to come down, uh, but not as fast as what many people have in mind. Yeah. And are there certain aspects that you're watching? I don't know, like rent prices or these wage, how these wage hikes might be passing through? Yeah, it's, uh, it's actually, ironically, it's a good time to go uh, get a job because uh, wages are uh, uh, you're seeing a lot of bonuses being paid, uh, a lot of help wanted. Um, so for those that 
have been marginally attached or uh, to the workforce or have had trouble, uh, it probably is actually a good time to uh, uh, get a good match in the labor market. Um, so good for them. Uh, they can get higher wages than they would have. Uh, so on the rents, uh, I do think that this is a very interesting development. The rents have turned around and started to rise again. And uh, that is usually a core component of a, a, a sort of sticky part of inflation that would be persistent. Uh, so that's something we're watching uh, closely as well. I, I want to push you a little bit about your, you just mentioned inflation next year in your mind could easily run between two and a half or 3%. Um, in some ways, that's a pretty big difference. You know, one's a little bit closer to two and one's obviously 3%. Uh, you know, how concerning for you would it be if it does run 2.8, 2 2.9, 3%, closer to that 3% range? Is that too high for, for the Fed? Well, what I've been uh, concerned about is the risk management here. I, I actually think as far as just sitting here today, I think we're in great shape uh, as a committee and, and as for U.S. monetary policy. But how is this going to play out over the next year? And, uh, you know, we're all counting on inflation coming back down. But what if it doesn't? Uh, we're susceptible to, let's say, an additional uh, inflationary impulse that we can't imagine right now. Uh, and we might get more inflation in 2022 than we bargained for. And in that situation, the committee would actually have to try to put downward pressure on inflation. And uh, that's the situation that we're not prepared for because actually putting downward pressure on inflation would mean that we're not purchasing assets and that, that the uh, the policy rate is well off the zero, uh, the near zero rate that we have right now. So we're not really in a situation where, where we're you know close to that. So my idea is to make small moves today, a little bit earlier and faster on the taper. Uh, and then uh, if we had to, uh, we'd be in a position to uh, better combat uh, surprise inflation to the upside in 2022. Now, um, you know, a lot of this is that uh, you don't want to get in a position of being very disruptive in monetary policy. You want to be planful and think about uh, what the possible situations are that you might face uh, even a year from now. And, and uh, uh, so this is, you know, part of the risk management calculation I've been trying to push. And I believe that you've suggested that maybe the committee should even start discussing pulling back, tapering, I guess is the official term, maybe even making that announcement in September. Um, you know, you were just saying it's obviously a balance of risk, but how do you not spook the market or cause one of these taper tantrums? Is, is September too early, given all these uncertainties with Delta variant? Yeah. That Paper tantrum in 2013 was actually uh, partly triggered by a comment then Chair Bernanke made at a, a congressional hearing. Uh, so that was just kind of a hint uh, that we might do something and that's what sent the markets uh, uh, into a tizzy at that point. But, the, but um, here we've uh, set up a, you know, a, a long conversation about uh, tapering and, and the committee has been very deliberate about that and the chair has been very good about um, 
you know, making it clear that uh, we we're going to think about the parameters of how we we're going to slow down our asset purchases. So I don't think there's going to be a, a taper tantrum in that sense. Uh, markets are well prepared and know that we're we're talking about this and contemplating uh, what the parameters might be. Um, so I think, uh, you know, I think the asset purchases, which are very substantial, you're talking about 120 billion per month. Uh, you're talking about a doubling of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. Um, do you really want to continue this in an economy that's growing at 7%? Uh, labor markets are certainly improving. They tend to lag behind alpha, but they're certainly improving. Unemployment to vacancies ratio is one. You know, yes, we got to get the people matched up to jobs, but that's going to happen uh, in the coming months. And uh, so I think these purchases made total sense in March, April of 2020. Uh, very helpful in preventing an incipient financial crisis that could have occurred at that time. Um, but since then, financial stress measures have come way down uh, back to uh, pre-pandemic levels. And I don't think that we need to continue with these purchases now that we've got new risks on the horizon and possibly inflation risks on the horizon. And uh, part of the benchmark for when to roll back some of this aid to the economy, including these bond purchases, is the notion that the economy will have made substantial progress towards employment and stable prices. Can, can you help us understand what your definition of substantial progress is? You know, is it seeing a really strong labor market report here for July and August? Or kind of how do you define that we've made that substantial progress that it's time to pull back? Yeah, we laid down that marker in December of last year. And if you look at the uh, projections of the committee in December of last year, we were saying that uh, real economic growth would be 4% in 2021. We're more likely to get, you know, 7%. I think I'm still at 7% real growth for 2021. Um, we said the unemployment rate would uh, tick down. It's come down much faster than we uh, projected. Uh, we said the inflation rate, core PCE inflation for all of 2021 would be 1.8%. We're going to get something like a three and a half probably on that. So, um, you know, it's very clear that uh, things have progressed uh, quite rapidly compared to what we were expecting in December of last year. So I don't think we're going to have any trouble meeting that criteria for getting the taper started. What I think we should do here <clears throat> is start sooner and go faster and get finished by the end of the first quarter of next year. We don't really need the purchases anymore. Uh, markets are well aware that we're talking about tapering. And, uh, and so I think we could um, uh, pull back on these purchases. Then what that would do is kind of take uh, asset purchases off the table for a for the time being anyway, as a tool. And then uh, we'd be able to assess the situation in the first half of next year or in the summer of next year and just see where we're at and what we have to do on the policy rate. We wouldn't have to do anything uh, depending on how the data come in at that point, um, but we would have op more optionality if we follow uh, the, the path that I'm suggesting.
Got it. Um, I'd like to ask you about uh, the housing market. You uh, raised some eyebrows with a recent comment that you see an incipient housing bubble. So not not fully here yet, but maybe the, or should we say green shoots have a, have a housing bubble? Um, you know, can you talk us through how concerned are you really about what you're seeing in the housing market? Uh, I am. Uh, I guess moderately uh, concerned. Uh, we did see uh, rapid increases in house prices since the pandemic has come on. You've got some shift in demand here about what people want out of their housing arrangements. So that's part of the story. Uh, you've got uh, people less willing to sell their houses. So you've got low inventories. That's part of the story. But uh, the biggest concern for me in the mid 2000s, we had a housing bubble, and uh, what we learned from that experience is that if these prices go down precipitously, there they went down 30 percent. Uh, that caused tremendous uh, problems both in the U.S. economy and the, in the global economy. So we don't really want to get into that kind of situation again and we really don't need to be doing anything to feed into that process and one of the things that we're doing is is purchasing assets which is intended to lower longer term yields including mortgage yields and uh uh so why do that in this situation i think it's probably not the uh the wisest policy here uh and that's a good reason to uh, pull back on these uh, purchases Again, I don't really think we need them at this point. Um, uh, we've got a lot of recovery going on. We've got a lot of further uh, recovery that's going to happen uh, from here to the end of the year and into 2022. So it's kind of, you've kind of got the super tanker uh, kind of situation and where you have to start turning now and thinking a little bit differently now about where we're going to be in mid-2022. Hmm. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is how much of this housing frothiness you, you think is being driven by the Federal Reserve here. It, it sounds like you think a good bit is coming from these bond purchases and, and the super low interest rates. Well, uh, if ever there was an interest sensitive sector, uh, it's the housing sector. And um, uh, so we're, we've got a policy of trying to put downward pressure on longer term interest rates. So I think it absolutely is feeding in. I think you could make arguments about what the marginal impact is compared to other factors. Um, but why push it all in this direction? Uh, you know, let, let the market decide uh, uh, what the house prices should be. We shouldn't be, uh, I say, feeding into this process. Uh, uh, whatever it is in in, um, in housing market. And do you think it would make any difference if you all rolled back the mortgage-backed security purchases first before the treasure, um, you know, the government purchases, or should they move together um, to roll both purchases off? You know, that's a good question. Um, I've emphasized the mortgage-backed security part of the purchases because, uh, you know, that I think when we originally did that in uh, the last crisis, 2007 to 2009, uh, it was intended to influence the housing market. That was a case where the uh, housing market had collapsed and we were trying to revive it. 
with lower long-term, longer-term interest rates, and specifically lower uh, rates on mortgage-backed securities. But uh, so here we took out that playbook again and and uh, and played the same card, possibly because we were anticipating further problems in the housing market when the pandemic came upon us in March and April of 2020. But as it's turned out, the housing market has actually been a very resilient market, a very strong market, this whole process. And so um, I think we should, you know, that's another reason to get uh, out of the asset purchases. Now, it's true that they're close substitutes, uh, the, the, treasury, uh, uh, the treasury market and the mortgage-backed securities market, they're certainly very safe and, and they tend to trade uh, fairly close together, but um, uh, so in that sense, it might not matter too much uh, if you went first with uh, mortgage-backed or changed the composition much. I, I would just say that both sets of purchases are putting downward pressure on longer-term interest rates. Housing is a very interest-sensitive sector, so we are feeding into an incipient housing bubble. We want to stop doing that, and that's a good reason to uh, get the tapering going, get it over with by the end of the first quarter in 2022. Got it. I want to ask you a little bit about the labor market. I should give you some credit in the spring when many people were predicting you know, a million plus jobs to be added. You, you came out and said you thought it wouldn't be so strong, maybe more like half a million. And that's generally what it turned out to be for several months there. I'm curious to hear your take now. Do you think we will see some of these bigger numbers closer to a million for the next few months? Uh, not really. Um, I'm sticking with my 500,000 uh, number. Uh, that's been the average, even since the uh, vaccines came on the scene in January, February of this year. Uh, if you just average uh, the non-farm payrolls since since that time, it's it's uh, just a little over 500,000. So that makes me think that uh, it's not that easy to add, um, you know, a million jobs in a particular month. Uh, so I think 500,000 is probably a good bet from here uh, forward. I would say, though, um, just to put some perspective on that, that's still a gigantic number uh, compared to what we were used to pre-pandemic. And uh, if you just add at 500,000 per month, by the time you, but by the time we're doing this interview again next year, uh, we'd be all the way back to the uh, pre-pandemic level of uh, non-farm payrolls, which is a criteria not for tapering, but for raising the policy rate. So you'd be sitting here next summer with inflation uh, well above uh, target and jobs all the way back to pre-pandemic level. Um, so that sounds to me like that's something we should be uh, prepared for. So that's why I've been saying, uh, let's get the taper going get that done, and then we'll be able to assess the situation when we get uh, into this phase next year. Mm. I also want to ask you about unemployment insurance. Uh, you're in a state in Missouri, and your district also includes Arkansas. Both of those states were early in June to roll back some of the unemployment benefits to take away that $300 federal supplement. Uh, do you think it made any difference to, to roll some of that back early? Uh, I believe we have a blog on this, uh, and it did make a little bit of difference. Um, it depends a little bit how you cut the data. Um, uh, one of our economists has looked at this, uh, Bill Dupour, 
Um, so the basic, the issues there about analyzing that are that different states announcements took effect at different points in time. So you kind of have to use weekly data and look at claims numbers. And, uh, and then somehow you have to control for other things that might be going on in those states. Uh, so uh, when you really get into it, it's probably pretty hard to uh, see uh, an exact uh, tracking, but it did seem to have a little bit of impact. But it sounds like, do you see it as the major factor that's slowing people's return to work right now? Or, or do you think some of these other factors are playing a bigger role? Uh, I, I think it is playing a role, but uh, probably equally with other other factors. I mean, kids at home, uh, for a, a spouse that's staying at home with kids, uh, that's going to dominate uh, anything about, you know, the uh, that would have to do with uh, the level of unemployment benefits. Um, I think uh, fear of of the uh, you know uh, the pandemic itself and the, and the virus itself that's also an issue. Although this is really a preventable disease at this point, you can go out and get vaccinated and get a lot of protection, and and the vaccines are holding up quite well even against uh, new variants. Yeah. So whenever the Washington Post says that we're interviewing a Fed leader, the number one question that readers ask us is to ask you, is the Fed contributing to inequality? You know, they look around, they see the stock market up, they see these home values up, you know, they still see a lot of people unemployed, and they just, people sort of feel that the Fed is contributing to these inequality problems in the nation. How do you respond to that kind of concern and criticism? You know, I think this is a, a core issue for uh, for macroeconomics and for the uh, Federal Reserve and central banks around the world. Um, I've actually got my own theories uh, about this and about how this should work, but uh, I think it's really very interesting. It's come to the fore, but I would say just generally at, uh, you know, there are two views of this. Uh, some people think that the low interest rates are helping borrowers and are helping to reduce unemployment from what it would otherwise be. So those things sound like you're helping the low end of the income distribution. And we've even had uh, past uh, policymakers and chairs make exactly the case for that, that the reason you want to keep interest rates low is because you're helping the lower half of the income distribution. Then you have uh, the exact opposite argument that low interest rates uh, tend to raise uh, equity prices uh, and other asset prices, uh, maybe housing prices, and that tends to be skewed toward the asset owning part of the economy, and that tends to be uh, older and and richer, and so you're helping that group. Uh, and so, which is it? Uh, are you are you helping the low end, or are you helping the high end, or what? And I think the only way we're going to get the good uh, analysis of this is that to have models and sort this out. That's why I've tried to when I put on my research hat, I've tried to think about exactly how to do this uh, in a way that. Um, that, that can make sense of those two 
powerful arguments. Yeah. Um, let me ask, you're also, you know, you're CEO, you're in charge of a lot of people right now, and this is a tough environment to do that. What percent of your staff are back in the office and are you going to require vaccinations? Um, so for the return to office, uh, and I would say for us and for all of corporate America, this is just uh, taking huge amounts of mindshare and a very uh, angst producing, I would say, among our employees. Uh, and so it's really uh, uh, one of the toughest management uh, issues that we faced and we're trying to be as fair and as good as we can be uh, on this. Um, on the return to bank, uh, we have a plan for this fall, um, but basically we've had people coming in on a voluntary basis, uh, almost all of them vaccinated. And uh, if they, for some people being back in the bank is very, uh, productive uh, compared to their home situation and uh, and you know we've allowed that and it's not every day but it's many days and that's a couple hundred people um, the uh, other people have just uh, uh, continued to work from home uh, that's been successful we also have essential workers that have been here the entire time and we really appreciate our essential workers um they've had uh extra pay uh during the pandemic um so uh we have to manage the current situation now uh what we're going to do on mandates uh usually the fed stays close to what the uh, federal government does uh technically we're not part of the federal government in the at the bank here but we tend on this kind of issue we tend to uh follow the guidance uh and so President Biden came out with an announcement last week, but as far as I know, maybe you know, uh, I don't think OPM, Office of Personnel Management, has actually put out the, the actual guidance yet, so I'm quite sure uh, where we're at on that. So this is something we're uh, wrestling with uh, right now. Well, then, uh, yes, difficult time to, to be in your shoes. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm sorry we didn't get to talk about cycling, but maybe next time we can throw in your <laughs> pandemic hobby as well. Uh, thank you, Jim Bullard. Thank you, Heather. It's uh, really great to be here. Thanks to the Washington Post. As always, thank you for tuning in to Post Live. We've got a great lineup coming up. You can check it out and register for events at WashingtonPostLive.com. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.